Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, which is also on page 8 of your bulletin. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. This is God's word. We're rounding out the series on movement. Movement is one of the values of Metro Presbyterian Church. And what we, when we say movement, what we mean is that Christianity, it didn't advance through means of subversion, but rather through means of conversion, transformation. And Metro Presbyterian Church, we, we need to reflect the same kind of character of transforma- transformation that's been ev- evident throughout the course of church history. And this passage, it's important because it comes at a time when people are emptied. The holidays are over. Uh, we're financially emptied. We're uh, just physically, people are just spent. Their lives are spent. And this passage is fitting because it's about filling. Verse 4. Everybody was filled. All were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were so full that this small group of people began a movement that changed the entire world. And they didn't do it because the power came from within. If the power came from within, it would have fizzled out. Rather, the power came from outside, and it fueled them. And it hap- this happened uh, on a particular day. The Spirit came on the day of the Pentecost. Uh, God chose to fill his people on that day. Why? What's the meaning? It's important for us to know. It's worthwhile for us to learn. God chose to fill his people on this day. And so we're going to talk about three points here, what it means to be filled. Uh, the new mountain, new message, the new messenger. New mountain, new message, new messenger. First, the new mountain. This fire kind of came. These tongues of fire came and separated and rested on the people. That's what it said. There was a, a quaking. There was a, a storm-like uh, occurrence in this room that everyone was gathered in, all the disciples, after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And this fire came, literally this fire came and rested on the people. It's amazing. At this Pentecost, now there was already a Pentecost. This is not the first Pentecost. But this Pentecost, at this, on this day that the, that the uh, people of God came and celebrated and observed, became very reminiscent of the first Pentecost that ever happened. What happened at the first Pentecost? There were two ways that the Jews, God's people in history, celebrated. The Pentecost was actually one of the three major feasts um, in Jewish history. Uh, And God had mandated this to be one of the three feasts. Why was it so important? And why did God come and send his spirit on this day? The two ways that the Jews celebrated in, in the history, in Exodus chapter 18, you start to see this, 
um, from eight, chapters 18 ver- to chapters 33. First, the first Pentecost came at the time of the harvest. It was the onset of the harvest. And in, in an agrarian culture, the harvest meant everything because the harvest was a feast of the, it was the time of the first fruits, if you've ever heard that phrase. What does that mean? When the harvest comes, um, the first fruits gave you a foretaste of what was to come, and they celebrated that. It was a time of celebration. But it also came, it coincided roughly 50 days after the Passover. What's the Passover? It was 50 days roughly after the people, the Jews, they were enslaved in Egypt, and God had rescued them. He said he rescued them with his own hand. He rescued them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Let them cross the Red Sea. He parted, you know, Moses, he parted the Red Sea. They they crossed the Red Sea and they came to a place called Mount Sinai. That all happened roughly 50 days. That's that's why you call it Pentecost, Pente, right, meaning five. 50 days after their rescue from Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, ended up at Mount Sinai. And it's where God first began to turn this loose group of slaves into his people. He brought them in as his people. And there he appeared to them. 50 days after he rescued them, he appeared to them at Sinai and he gave them the law. He made them into a people. Now, how did he appear at the first Pentecost? They looked at the mountain and they saw fire come down on the mountain. And there was a quaking and there was a storm. And it was a violent wind. In fact, throughout the Bible, whenever you see wind and storm and fire, generally, you often see the presence of God there with the people. He always came when he came in fire. He always came in fire. He always came in storm. There was always a quaking. Why is it like that? The people at Sinai, they were afraid. They were afraid. They were so afraid they couldn't see God. They didn't want to see God. They were afraid to see God because they knew that if they saw God, they would die. So what did they do? They said, Moses, you go up the mountain. You go up the mountain and find out what it is that God wants to say to us. The people couldn't breathe the fire. Why is that? The fire. Whenever you look at fire, have you ever sat around and looked at a campfire? It's beautiful. It's warm. It's bright. Children love campfires because it's it's otherworldly. It's very, very different from what they're used to in the day. So they're drawn to it. There's this thrill and there's this warmth. So when we come across something like that, it's beautiful to us. We're drawn to that beauty. We're drawn in and we're drawn to that warmth. There's this thrill that comes with the fire. But what happens when you come too close to a fire? You get burned. You get consumed. That's why God always came in fire. Fire consumes. And this is how most people view God. They see, they want the thrill of being close to God. They want to experience the warmth of what it means to be near God. But yet, they don't want to be consumed by God because of our guilt. We often feel shame. When we think of Christianity, we think of religion. And when we think of religion, we think about guilt, our sin, our inadequacy, our insecurities. And as a result, we kind of turn from God. We want to run from God. So on one hand, we want to be very close to God. We want the thrill of being being near God. Today, in today's world, more than any other time in history, there's a hunger for spiritual awareness, spiritual experience, and yet we don't want to get too close. Why? Because we fear being exposed. It makes us feel guilty. It makes us, we feel consumed. The fire will consume us. Now, this passage, there's a wind and there's a fire. God is coming close. That's what that means. But where is the mountain in this passage? It says here that tongues of fire came out and separated and rested 
on the people. In the first Pentecost, the fire came down, rested on the mountain. Where's the new mountain? The people. The people were the new mountain. The tongues of fire came and separated and rested on each person. That means each person has now become the new mountain where God comes and dwells and rests. That's an amazing thing that's going on. Each person now gets to experience the power and the glory and the beauty and the warmth. Everybody gets to experience that. The access that everybody has. It's profound. It's amazing. It's more than Moses ever had. It's more than the people in the old, the first Pentecost ever could experience. These people were literally filled with the presence of God. They were celebrating as a result. To be filled. To be filled. It's, it's to deeply experience Christianity is, to, is a deep, rich, personal experience of what? A rational truth. You don't just experience it without thinking. On one hand, it's an incredibly rational truth. You have to believe it because it's true. But you have to experience it. It has to fill you. That's the only way that's going to fill you. Because of Jesus, God made a way for anyone to be filled with the fire of his presence. That's an amazing thing. Now, there are some implications here. I'm going to walk through these implications in this first point. First, the fire came and rested on everybody, on all believers. That means that you, right now, at any point in time in your life, right now, you can experience the presence of God. You can be brought into the presence of God. That means that you have access to real beauty. You have access to real holiness. You have access to utter, utter truth and spiritual reality without being consumed. You don't have to feel inadequate. You don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel insecure. You don't have to, you can, you can actually be brought into the presence of God where you are, as you are. You can let the love of God actually fill you. You can let that love consume you. The same power that brought Jesus back from the dead can actually rest on you and fill you with his presence. That's an amazing thing. That's the safest place to be. It's a place of peace. It's a place of rest. Now, this happened on the day of the Pentecost. It was a harvest celebration. And that has huge implications for us too. It's the feast of the first fruits. That's when, that's when God first appeared to the people. It's when God then came and rested on the people on this Pentecost. We can experience that now. What is a first fruit? What that means is this. Our current Christian life that we live, a lot of us, we struggle. We say, I'm struggling to live a holy life. I'm struggling to live, and I'm struggling to believe. You know, and that's part of our suffering. There's no way that that can't be a part of our suffering because our doubts and our fears, our inadequacies, our shame, a lot of times, it's interacting with our faith. And, and we struggle sometimes to live this life. But what this is saying is that your faith right now is just a foretaste of what is to come. It's just a portion. It's, just, it's not even an appetizer. It's just a foretaste. Back then, the harvest came. You would get the first fruits. You would take of the first fruits. If the first fruits were sweet and juicy, what did that mean? Then what was to come was going to be overwhelmingly, unbelievably sweet. So that struggle that you feel and that you experience right now, but you, the reason why you hang in there is because you know, you believe. You know it's true. And you've experienced it. That experience is just a foretaste of what the depth and the heights and the riches and the blessing that is going to come. It's just a morsel. So on one hand, you can't rely too much on the foretaste. It's just a taste. Don't look at this and reject it because you, you're constantly left wanting. You're supposed to left wanting. be left wanting. But on the other hand, 
you're suffering because it's just a taste, it's just a taste. One day, you're going to be able to experience and worship God in such a way that is so liberated and so free and so complete, you have not been able to even experience that. You can't experience that here on earth. You will not, you will not know. It will, one day you will be brought to such completion, and then and only then will you have experienced and, uh, true worship, deep worship. So right now, the repentance that you, you know, your repentance right now, it's just a foretaste of the cleansing. It's just a foretaste of what's to come. Your bodies right now, everything right now is going to decay. That's what it means. Everything's falling apart. If you're a scientist, if you're in science, or in sciences, you know that the world, as it continues on to progress in time, is going into entropy. Everything is falling apart. Everything is falling into decay. You don't have to look at science to know that. Just look at your own bodies. You are not what you were two or three years ago. You're falling apart. Your bodies are falling apart. My body is falling apart. I had, I had issues that I never experienced even five years ago. I'm experiencing now. I got plantar fasciitis. It's all those years of playing basketball. You know, now my, my, my right big toe is bothering me. I can't even walk right. And I'm not even 40. Our bodies are falling apart. Our world is falling apart. You look outside, the world is falling apart, going into utter decay. What does that mean? For those of us who want to serve the city and grow the city, our service is just a foretaste of the overwhelming richness that's going to come with the kingdom. It's going to wipe out all that is evil in the world one day. So you can't rely too much on just the service. You can't come down on people too much because they're not serving enough. Because even at our best, it's just a taste. But it is a taste. And we have to experience it. We have to know it because it's real and because it's good. So we can't be too dissatisfied with our place in life because it's just a taste. We can't be too frustrated with our place in life. If you're spiritually dissatisfied, Know that it's just a foretaste of what's to come. It's going to come. And it's, and it's real now. The reason why you're dissatisfied is because there was something real that you experienced. Remember that. Know that. That's the, that's the first, that's the new mountain. The, the spirit came and rested on the people. They felt it. They were moved. So that means that even now, if you have positive or negative feelings, you know, in faith, oh, you're suffering in faith, or you're, wow, I'm really experiencing it. No, it's just a foretaste. What's to come is going to be so much more real, so much more incredible, so much more glorious, the full beauty, the whole beauty, the completion. That's what's to come. We are the new mountain. We are the place where God can now come and richly bless and dwell, and yet it's just a foretaste, something to come, the greatness that will come. Now, the second point is the new message. Verses 6 to 12. At the first Pentecost, Moses went up the mountain. And what did he come back with? He wanted to see the wholeness of the beauty of God. And what he came back with, God gave him the law. Now, what is the law? The reason why God gave Moses the law at that point in time was because this loose collection of tribes came together. The 12 tribes came together. God had to make them a people. And at Sinai, he beca- they became a nation. What do laws do? They define a nation. You go to one country, their laws are different than this country. And so God gives his people now laws by which they can see and be defined by. And the first Israelites, these Israelites, they were rescued out of Egypt. And remember what God says. In Exodus 19, God says, I have lit- literally, he says, I carried you on eagle's wings to this place. You, know, you, you think the Red Sea just parted because you're good people? 
Remember, he saved them first. He brought them out of Egypt first, and then he gave them the law. He didn't give them the law and said, now the people who can make it across the, the Red Sea, who are good, who follow, my, who follow my commands, they're the ones that I've saved. That's not what he said. He brought them out of Egypt, brought them across the Red Sea. He says, I, literally, I carried you here on eagle's wings. It's the ultimate love story. I carried you here on my wings. I rescued you. You have my heart. And if you read Exodus, 6, Exodus 19, he doesn't say, now I'm going to give you these laws that I want you to follow so that you, know, you, can, you can go to the next level. That's not what he says. He says, this is how you're going to be my treasure. In other words, he's saying, he's saying I love you. I've rescued you. You are, my, you are my people. And this is how I want you to become my treasure. I want you to grow into me. I've brought you to myself. I want you to grow into me. These laws define who God is. The reason why he's giving us these laws is because they define us as a people, but what are they defining us into? The character of God, his character. Every law in the Ten Commandments define a character, quality of God, the richness of who God is. It shows us at the least that God is loving and that he is just. At the least. It shows us, Moses says, I want to see your glory on the mountain. And God says, I'm going to show you all my glory. I'm going to show you all of my goodness. I'm going to show you all of my justice. That's what he says. He says, but I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock because if you were to see me full force, my goodness and my justice will be so overwhelming, you will be consumed. So I can't do that. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to hide you there. I'm going to pass by so that you see all of my goodness, all of my justice, but just from the backside. And then and it's a, Moses, when he came to the mountain, it says that his face was radiant. He was shining. Now, what does all that mean? Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I'm going to show you my name. I'm going to show you my justice. I'm going to show you my goodness. And what he says, he reveals himself. As he passes by, he tells Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord. And he says, I am gracious. I am compassionate. I am your loving, your faithful God, he says. And he says, I do not... He says, I love to forgive. I'm gracious. I'm compassionate. I love to forgive. But at the same time, he says, but I do not clear the the guilty. I do not clear away the guilty. I'm not going to even take away one ounce of guilt from from the people. On one hand, I love to forgive, but I'm not going to forget even one wrongdoing. I am all good. I am all faithful. I am all loving, and yet I am all just. That's a part of my goodness. Think about it. Would you want a God that is not just? That means that evil can get let go. That means that evil can win. That means that the irrational, some of the most horrific things can go unpunished. You would not want a God like that. Would you want a police department like that? You would certainly not want a God like that. God says, in order for me to be all good, I have to be all you know, good and lo- loving and loyal and compassionate and gracious. And at the same time, I have to be all just as well. And that's why you have to be hidden in the rock because my justice will consume you. Even Moses is a person. He's a sinner. That's what he says. Laws define a person, but it shows us the great quality, the character of God. And it's very easy to understand that. It's very easy to understand that. Violating God's law is to violate a part of his character. It means that you have now become separate from him. It's easy for us to understand that. If you're from San Francisco today, if you're from Baltimore today, 
There is not a single native San Franciscan right now or a person from Baltimore today that is not rooting for their own team. In their household, they are not going to have San Francisco paraphernalia if you're living in Baltimore. If you're from San Francisco, you're not going to have Baltimore paraphernalia in your household. It is an unstated rule. It's a law. Your family's going to be brought up loving that team. I'm an Eagles fan. I'm a diehard Eagles fan. There is no way, by nature, Eagles fans hate Giants fans. There are some Giants fans in this room. I'm not going to tell you who they are, okay? It would be a sin to tell you who they are. But the thing is, now, if you have, uh, there's an unstated rule. It's actually a stated rule in my house. There is no way, my wife and I agree, there's no way our children are going to grow up Giants fans or Cowboys fans or Redskins fans. You have to hate them by law, all right? You have to. Now, if my child goes off to college and comes back, you know, a Giants fan. He has broken my law. My love for him <laughs> will be changed forever. No, that's not, that's not what, what God, you know, but that's exactly, that's kind of like what's going on here, right? Being an Eagles fan, saying, you know, thou shalt not wear Giants paraphernalia in my home. That is a law that comes out of my character. You learn a little bit about me, my love for the Eagles, my fierce loyalties, when God says, thou shalt not kill, what is he saying? He's saying he loves life. He's loyal. When God says, do not commit adultery, what is he saying? I am faithful to the end, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard, and I want you to be faithful, and I want you to practice that faithfulness to each other because it is my character that is in you. That's what he's saying. Our laws define who we are as a people. Because it shows and defines the character of who God is. And that's why God rescues us and gives us his law because he wants us to be brought into him and, then be, and to treasure him like he treasures us. That's what he wants. Now, the people, they observe the laws, but then they start to emphasize the works of those laws as a way of feeling treasure. But God says, obey these laws and you become my treasure. But they took that and they said, well, in order for me to be treasured by God, in order to, for me to be rescued by God, in order for me to be saved by God, then I have to obey these laws. They flipped it around. Religion is outside in. I have to obey God's commands so that he will accept me. God said, I have carried you here on eagle's wings. I've brought you to myself first. Now obey these laws. The gospel is inside out. God's love and God's acceptance of me is so profound, even in my weakness and inadequacy and insecurity, that to treasure God is to obey these laws. I, you know, when, you, when someone has rescued you from something, your immediate response is what? You're just, you're just so grateful, so thankful. Gratitude, love. That's what we return with. That's how we respond. And God says, now that I've saved you and we have this love relationship, Let's define each other. Let's commit to one another fully. That's what these laws are about. In this passage, the people, they're filled with the Spirit, it says. They celebrate. They all start speaking different languages. Now, the emphasis of this text is not so much on the different tongues. That's not what it is. If you look at, actually look and read the text carefully. You don't have to even read it that carefully. The emphasis is not on, you know, the way the Spirit came and 
blew everybody apart and he starts speaking. That's not what it does here. They, it's, it's actually the content of what they're saying. You see all these different languages, but what? What's the emphasis? They're all declaring the wonders of God. They're all declaring, in Hebrew, the works of God. They're no longer emphasizing their works. These are Jews that came to become, to believe in Jesus. They stopped emphasizing their own works. They're, instead, they're emphasizing. They're all declaring, in all these different languages, the works of God, the work of God. In the old mountain, they were freed from slavery, work. They were brought across to Sinai. This new mountain, now God has rested on his people. And they have freedom from cosmic slavery, spiritual work, self-work. You no longer, gone are the days now where you look at another person and you compa- you, the need to compare yourself with another person because they are worse than you or because they're better than you. Why? Because you are loved with an everlasting love. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. I've loved you with an everlasting love. The deeper you plant that truth into your life, it's going to radically change your insecurities. It's going to radically change your, your inadequacies. If you're failing at work, it's easy to look at people who are even worse than you and make fun of them because it makes you feel better about yourself. Or it's easy to look down on yourself because you're not as good as the person next to you because they're so much better than you. But when you take, why do we do that? It's because deep inside there's a spiritual, spiritual thing that's going on. Madonna, in an interview with Lynn Hirschberg in Vanity Fair magazine, um, talks about her need her need to constantly outdo herself, to reinvent herself. And part of that reinventing herself, she says, is because I'm constantly working and working. It's to overcome some sort of deep inner spiritual uh, security, sense of insecurity in her life. And she says, I don't think I'll ever get over that. I don't think I ever will. That's why I'm constantly working. I'm working. She literally says that. That's the reason. In other words, what she's saying is it's a spiritual thing. There's this cosmic need to work and to become better. Why? Because we feel so inadequate cosmically. There is a God, and we feel inadequate. Here, when you take the truth of the gospel, that you were loved with an everlasting love, that it has nothing to do with your works, then your works become secondary. Your works become secondary. You are known, you are accepted, you are loved. That becomes primary. That's what starts the movement. That's what starts the the gratitude, the response. Now, we don't come to Christianity, we don't come to Jesus, we don't come to the gospel because we say, you know, you you don't, these people were not declaring, you know, now I have a great peace in my life, now I have great security in my life, although those are all good things, now I have satisfaction and fulfillment in my life, that's true, Christianity does bring those kind of things, but that's not what they were declaring, in all these different languages, what were they declaring? They were declaring the work of God, on one hand you have the holiness of God, And then you have this grace of God. The truths of the gospel have come into their lives, spoke into their characters, spoke into their egos, spoke into their flaws, into their, they've been exposed, and yet they saw Jesus, what he's done. God has sent his son to die for them. And that has transformed them. That's what they were declaring. That's what captivated them. That, when something captivates you, and something uh, takes over you and overwhelms you in a way that just makes you burst in praise, what is that? That's worship. 
They were declaring the works of God. And what happens when the gospel comes in and fills, speaks into your character and fills you? One of the ways that we see this, here are Galileans. Are not these people Galileans? That's what it says here in the text. Galileans were known for their narrow-mindedness, for their uh, single ethnicity complex, because that's all they knew. They were very provincial people, and yet they were all speaking different languages. And the people outside recognized they're in their own language what these people were declaring. They were declaring the works of God. These pagans were walking by and saying, wow. And then these God-fearing Jews walking by and saying, wow. These people are declaring the works of God. Many people were amazed. Some people were skeptical. Oh, they were drunk. They had too much wine. But many people were amazed at what was going on. What's going on? In Genesis chapter 1, God had commanded Adam to go and be fruitful, to increase in number. That was Genesis. That was the first chapter, the first book, and the first uh, couple chapters of Genesis. Go increase in number. And the last time we saw something like this taking place was in Genesis chapter 10. You see the table of nations. All these nations are listed. And these people congregated. Genesis chapter 11, they congregated. And what did they do? They said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let's build a city. Let's come together. Let's have unity to make a name for ourselves. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 11. And God comes down. They wanted God to come down. They wanted, what they were building was a tower, a ziggurat, a temple. Temples were the access point to God. They wanted to have access. They wanted God to come down and give them access. But instead, God does come down. And what he, do, what he does is he dashes, he dashes the city. He confuses their speech. He confuses their language. And you're seeing God saying, I want you, instead of coming together for your own purposes, to spread out for my name. Now we see here in Acts chapter 2, these provincial people coming together. And what happens? They're all speaking the table of nations again. Except this time, they're declaring the work of God. It's the reverse of the curse. Babel was a symbol of people coming to make a name for ourselves. That's why to this day, we all congregate around big cities. Anybody who wants to be anybody comes to a great city. That's why they come to the city of Philadelphia. Why? So that we can make our name great. But here is the reverse of that. God has come. He's filled these people. And as a result, what do you see? The scattering. They're now speaking in all these different languages. It's a reconstruction of the table of nations, except it's a reversal and a redemption of that. That's what you're seeing here. It's a movement that has begun. Sin is we work to gain access to God on our own. That results in what? Emptiness, confusion, frustration, But the gospel is because of the love of God, because of the grace of God. God has come down and he's taken our place. And as a result, this stops the confusion. It stops the emptiness. You you begin to become filled. Why? Because you're now, instead of trying to serve yourself, which leads to emptiness, God has come. He has entered into our lives. We can become filled. It's the end of work. It's the end of self-work. Now we can work to serve other people. And that is an amazing thing that's going on. And it happened because they were filled. Now how can we be filled? It's the last point. The first mountain, Moses, goes up the mountain. He was the mediator. He was the one that braved the fire. He was the one that braved the presence of God. The people said, we're too afraid. You go up the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain. But even Moses had to be placed into a cleft of a rock because he could be consumed 
Even he, Moses, as a sinner, as a human being, could have been consumed. But in the second mountain, God rests on us. We get to experience the fullness of God. Moses only got to see the backside of God. We get to see all his goodness, all his justice, all his love. Why? We get to do that and we get to worship. Why? Because of a new mediator. In Matthew chapter 27, Jesus ascends a mountain. He ascends a mountain. Calvary. Moses got to hide in the cleft of a rock because he gets to see the presence of God as his rock, as his shield. But we have Jesus, our mediator. He is our cleft in the rock. He is our mediator. He is our shield. We get to experience all of God's grace. Why? On the cross, Jesus experiences all of God's justice. Moses, he's in the cleft of rock. God says, you need to see my justice. You want to see my justice and my goodness and my love. That's my goodness. But Jesus gets to experience that in full, the justice of God. Not one sin. How is it that God says, I'm gracious and compassionate. I love to forgive, and at the same time, I will not let one sin pass before me. How does he do that? On the cross, Jesus. Jesus says, not one sin will pass before God. All of the sins we put on Jesus on the cross. And God says, I will not one sin, let one sin go unpunished. Jesus braved the full fire of the wrath of God. He was consumed on the cross. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, I am being emptied. God has literally left me. The Trinity is being torn apart. All of me has become none of me. In other words, I'm emptied in full. Why? Because we can be filled. Jesus gets to experience all the justice of God. Why? So that we can say, I have the love and the grace and the compassion of God. God has drawn me in, and yet I'm not consumed. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus was consumed. Jesus lost the love of God. Jesus lost the presence of God. Why? So that we can be filled with the love of God. We become the new mountain. Jesus is our mediator. We become the new mountain. If you're spiritually struggling, if you feel dissatisfaction in life, that's a spiritual thing. You can be filled. You can be utterly filled because Jesus was emptied of the love of God. You can be filled with the love of God. That's why in Hebrews chapter 12, we read that you have come to this new mountain together to joyful, a joyful assembly. And all of us get to worship God in full, with full access. What was Jesus' joy then on his mountain? In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for the joy set before Jesus, what filled him? What knowledge filled him when when he was being emptied of God? It says in the Bible, his satisfaction was to see us being filled. His satisfaction was to see us being united with God. That was what filled him. That knowledge, that future that he saw, that's what brought him joy. That's why on the cross, he was reciting the words of Psalm 22, which starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was still worshiping on the cross as God was departing from him. He was still worshiping. He perfectly worshiped to even redeem our worship. That's an amazing thing. Do you believe that? When that truth grips you, 
That's when you start being filled. You stop living to make a name for yourself. That's going to only lead you to frustration, dissatisfaction, disillusionment, alienation. It's going to make you empty. Be filled with the Spirit's presence. What does that do? Sin, we struggle with sin. Why? Because we're living out only a half-truth of God. A lot of us either want to believe that God is just good and loving and gracious and compassionate, but we forget that he's a holy God. And because we forget that he's a holy God, we're living out a half-truth. And as a result, we're always, uh, you know, we're going out and we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting other people. We're stepping all over people to make a name for ourselves. And it's going to lead to alienation, loss of community. That's how we lose friends. That's how we lose ourselves. But on the flip side, a lot, some of us, we obey and embrace the law because we see God as holy and just. And we forget that he is loving and he is gracious and he's compassionate and he wants to forgive. It's not like you have to like kind of grovel and crawl at him and he's like, oh, let me think about it. That's really hard for me to do this. Fine, you're forgiven. That's not what he does here. He says, I want to forgive. I'm gracious. I'm compassionate. In fact, when he passes by Moses, even in the Old Testament days, he says, the Lord, the Lord. He's emotional about it. He's, he's pouring out himself. And he says, I am gracious and I'm compassionate. That's going to humble you. That's going to humble you because it's not about you. It's not about your merits. That should humble you. We're all broken. We're all sinners. we all so inadequate, so insecure. We're filled with that. But it's also going to give you courage. Why? Because you know that the power comes from outside and it fills you because of his love. Will you remember that? This, when you plant, these people were normal, ordinary people. They were Galileans. In fact, if anything, they were looked down on for their you know, provincial attitudes, their narrow-mindedness, and yet from here birthed an explosion not just of good character, a community that exploded here, that practiced grace, that knew grace. It was their confidence. This was their joy. That's what started the movement. And here at Metro Presbyterian Church, we need to reflect a character of that transformation. Our church is growing. Our people are growing. I'm so encouraged to hear that people are saying, I'm growing, I'm maturing, but at the same time, and we're growing in numbers. We're growing in children. That's why we need more space. But the thing is, it's got to go even beyond that. The different languages, the different parts of the world, Philadelphia is a great city because we have the world at our window. But let's not let it just be a window. Let's be a door. Let's go. Let's connect with people as they come in. We need to be just as reaching inside here to one another as we are outside there to the community. We need to love the community. It's just a foretaste. But it needs to be active and real. Let's practice that by first being good at what you do in your workplace. But connecting with people in the workplace. Loving people in the workplace. Deserving or not. There's no such thing as deserving. We're all broken. And then practicing it out there in our community. That's what it means to be here. If you're drawn to that, if you embrace that, let that be your vision. Let that be your hope and prayer. Let's pray together.